Hello and welcome to another episode of Back to Britpop. It's me, Chris. On this episode, I'm joined by Sarah Blackwood and Chris Wilkie from Dubstar. I know, it's the first two guests in one podcast. It's a really fascinating insight into the band's formative years, songwriting, musical heroes, and the Britpop scene back in the 90s. Just before we get underway with the interview, just a little bit of housekeeping, just to remind you that to support the podcast, it means a lot if you can pop over to Apple Podcasts and give me a five-star rating. And if you've got the time, leave a little review. Also on social media, you can follow me. Just search for Back to Britpop on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. That way you can keep up to date with all the new episodes. Another way to support me, if you wish to, is to follow me on my Ko-Fi page. The link to that is in the show notes. You can buy me a virtual coffee. That helps pay the server bill. I'll be back at the end for the Cheerios, but for now, here's Sarah and Chris. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah and Chris. How are you both? Hello. Good, thanks. Yeah, good, thank you. <laughs> it's nice to have two people on my podcast today. I don't usually get double double trouble. Ooh. Double trouble. <laughs> Two for the price of one. Yeah. How's it been for you? I mean, and this is a very difficult time. I don't want to ask the, the dreaded lockdown question, but how have you been coping with everything for the last 12 months or so? Oh, it's been difficult. You know, I mean, I, I, I'm an anxious person at the best of times. Um, and I've found that, uh, it, you know, it, it's been very <laughs> frightening, um, you know, but it is for everybody else. So I'm not inclined to, to grumble, you know, but it's just that a lot of if you are a naturally anxious person, especially um, if you've ever had treatment for it, um, you know, you, 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 you learn good habits to try to deal with it. And pretty much all of those habits were the ones we were told to break on mass, um, yeah. and you know what I mean. And so it's, it's kind of been hard, but uh, but having um having a, a, like the music to do with Sarah, uh, which kept keeps us connected, and also having a project feels like a very healthy thing for anybody to, to do at a time like this. So um so I can't complain too much. What about you, Sarah? How have you been feeling? I'm a natural introvert, so for me it was like. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I'm just really happy, like mooching around on my own and just like, you know, keeping my head down. And that's basically what I've just done. Slippers and sofa and just bunkered down. Yeah. But I, it, it started to sort of get to me this last lockdown, I think, where I've just thought, you know, it's just been a case of like narrowing your horizons, keeping your head down to stay sane. I haven't really sort of interacted with any of the rules and regulations because I don't think I could cope mm. I think like trying to do things would make me feel very very anxious indeed I mean I, I think one night we we went uh went out for curry with some friends and we all got in a taxi and we all had face masks and I thought I don't want to see my friends with masks on mm. and I started feeling really panicky and really it just brought it home to me a bit too much whereas if I just sit in my house and bunker down and and it's not happening and I'm all right and I'm very lucky to be able to do that as well I'm, I'm yeah I mean you and I have always been so slightly prone to agoraphobia I mean yeah. it, it, we don't take that much encouragement to to stop in you know I mean we're both a bit like that so in, in that respect we might have fared better than a lot of people but um you know it, it's still been frightening I guess have you reconnected with anything from uh, having the time to do so that you wouldn't have done in a, in a normal rushed life uh well yeah i mean actually since um sarah and me have been uh working with uh stephen Hig again when we started doing that that it was it was i think we had the conversations which led to it in february of last year so it was pretty much this time 
last year that I was sort of talking to Stephen every day. And like that, that made me start to reinvestigate records of his. I mean, because we, we, we did our first album with him 25 years ago. But like beyond that, it reminded me, I started listening to things from the mid 80s that he'd mm. done, knowing that I was going to be spending time talking to him again and, and trying to think of how to get the, the most out of it. And and I and I and I started listening to things which I hadn't listened to for ages from the nineteen eighties like that. What about you, Sarah? Have you been listening to things that you wouldn't normally? I've been doing yoga. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds ridiculous, but have I've the radio had, on. Well, I've had quite a lot of throat problems and things, so I've been like looking into like breathing and yeah. just you know trying to get my voice better. And I remember the day I discovered my oblique muscles, and I sent. Uh, Hagi as a, a vocal and he went oh you're killing me I went oh that's because I have <laughs> my oblique muscles today so that was quite nice let's, let's take you back a bit further if I can in, in terms mm -hmm. of like your, your both your musical influences because I like to do that uh, Sarah mm -hmm. were there any vocalists and uh, or, or artists that really kind of got you very inspired at an early age do you know I, I was thinking about this a few days ago and I think in the 80s I mean I always felt like I didn't fit and I didn't belong and, and I wasn't a typical singer. And I realized that all the singers that when I was starting to think about being a singer, they were all like these, it was like ride on time and these women that really belted stuff out. Mm. And I completely forgot that I grew up in the eighties and I had women like Kate Bush, Toya, Claire Grogan, Susie Sue, you know, really unusual women vocalists so I'm, I'm, I'm actually lying to say that you know there was nobody that I but who really sort of inspired me but I, I, I guess, guess the first person that really thought I can do this was when I heard um it, well, it for Dubstar it was one dove hearing um mm. somebody you know Dot Allison and she was actually sort of the first sort of dance floor vocalist that I thought oh this you know this this works in a sort of context that I can put it into but before that I think it was um Sinead O'Connor she made a massive impact on me and I think above everything else I just remember her eyes her face the fact that she had no hair and was just stunningly beautiful and she just really broke through all those 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 norms of, of, of beauty both in her voice and her, her the way that she looked and before that it was ABBA for females and, and Madonna I was an absolute Madonna maniac I you know just worship the ground she walked on and was there was there a moment do you think then Sarah where you thought this was something that you wanted to do and just to uh, as a profession or, or that you felt that you had talent or what and did it unlock talent in you at some sort of point I've never not thought about sort of being a singer really I, it kind of got put to one side as a kid because I wanted to be a ballerina like you know most girls do but um and then it, you know I, I used to um dance around you know my bedroom with a hairbrush and I mean my mum said that I was singing before it's it's really puke inducing isn't it but <laughs> she said I, I used to be in my cot and I'd be like making little wobbling noises and definitely something you know tunes going on while I was before I could even talk so yeah, yeah. that's that's the Abba song isn't it my mum said I was singing before I could, uh, could talk. Chris what about you in terms of like early musical influences early artists or guitar heroes? Oh crumbs um well there was always music in, in the house when I was a kid nobody nobody played music um I was an only child still am and um and my but my parents played records a lot. It was mainly uh, my dad was into Roxy Music and Kate, and Kate Bush, 
my mum was really into the Carpenters and Abba um, and John Denver and people like that. But And the radio was always on. You know, I can remember seeing David Bowie for the first time and thinking that was incredible. But I guess I started playing the guitar when I was about seven and I'd already played sort of keyboards because I had a little organ in the house. And um, my, my dad had given me a big pile of seven inch records and uh, they were all from the 60s and mainly. And, and, and I really liked the shadows. I loved uh, Hank Marvin, just the, something about the ambience, the sound of the sort of, it was very romantic and wistful and sort of dreamy with the sort of echo. And, and my dad showed me uh, on the sleeve what the, was making that sound. And the, the guitars looked so beautiful that I just, I really wanted to, the sound and what they looked like that became just a thing which kind of got embossed on my mind. Yeah. So I sort of taught myself largely how to play the guitar from that. And then I, you know, I want, I always liked uh, the, the Hollies records that my dad had, Tony Hicks, uh, the guitarist and the Hollies played sort of, he would play sort of uh, chords for instead of single notes a lot of the time in arpeggios. And so then when the Smiths came along when I was about 10 or 11, and so many of the other things on top of the pops were very uh, sort of, you know, synth duos and things like that, yeah. which I liked. But the fact that this guy was, he sounded like he'd been listening to the same stuff as me. I, I could hear those kind of 60s things going on as well. So Johnny Marr became a, a big deal for me. I also was really quite sort of taken by people like Gary Newman and Pet Shop Boys later on and, and a lot of the things which I didn't, you know, I didn't have those really expensive keyboards and things at home, yeah. but I liked the thought of them. But, as I, but I did have a guitar, so if you see what I mean, it, it took me a little while to be able to express myself with things like programming because that takes a bit more cash. Um, yeah, and, yeah. You know, and I, I, you know, I got a paper round and sold a bike and bought a decent guitar. And then again, I got a drum machine and, you know, a proper uh, home recording setup. And uh, by which point I was in my mid teens. And, you know, I think I was just emerging from my teens when I met Sarah. I think it was about 19. I remember your little like eight track. Yeah, I remember the yeah. care that you took with, with, with your little, with your, with your songs that you did on your eight track. Yeah. And then so we went right from that to, you know, being in professional studios, really. So so it was... Um, <laughs> Sidestepped all this. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was, it, there was no gaps. <laughs> yeah. We did six, six gigs before we got signed, didn't we? It was just Some, like, Something like that, yeah. I think... <laughs> I think uh, it was like Christmas 1993 and Sarah and I were in a, um, a club in Newcastle called Riverside. And uh, the, the night before, Oasis had played um, very early, former Oasis supporting mm. the Verve. We were on the next night and a guy was there watching us who ended up being our manager. Um, so, And then we spent most of 1994 with lawyers trying to sort out the record deal with EMI, yeah, yeah. which was a really fascinating thing to, to do when you're 20, you know, yeah, yeah. but you know, the rest is history. Did you have like a manifesto? Did you have like a, a plan or was it, you know, you, I guess you're in terms of from getting together and then getting signed, it was quite a relatively quickish process. Then, if you're saying like, mm. you, know, you didn't have to uh, tour as much as potentially some guitar bands were doing. Do you think, mm. did you have like a plan? that you wanted to get to certain stages or, or did you wing it? Well, I mean, Sarah and I had been in lots of bands and, and sort of things like that in Newcastle on the, you know, the, the pub circuit 
live scene in, in Newcastle. But in actual fact, when we when we signed with when Andy Ross from Food signed us to AMI through his label Blueprint, um, the the idea was we were not going to play live. It, we were thinking of it more of a you know a making. I mean, in the golden age of copyright, you could do that. You know, you could just yeah. make records and make a living. Um, you usually lost money on tour, um, and it's kind of the opposite of the way people perceive it now. But as as it went on, and we got absorbed in that North London situation our press office was as savage and best like the rest of the nw1 you know like uh you know all the, the brick poppers and everything yeah and, and and at one point i remember them just saying to us look you know maybe we, you're gonna have to do the, the live thing again you know which we we, we steadfastly not really done mm. um well andy said but, didn't he that we were the only band that he'd ever signed that he hadn't seen play live yeah because our manager at the time said that, like, the minute you start playing live with people, especially if you're doing it a lot, like going down to Camden Town and doing the circuit, all you're doing is creating another reason why people won't, won't sign you. Because right. mo most of the A&R men, they, they're looking for the reasons not to sign you. They, do, they don't lose their job if they haven't signed somebody. They lose their job if they sign somebody and it doesn't work. Yeah. Um, then they lose money, you know. Um, yeah. So they're always usually their troubleshooting ethos was to see all the reasons why we shouldn't sign these people. So our manager's concept was, you know, austerity in terms of the, what we actually reveal yeah. until the minute we're actually in the fold, you know, and it, and it did, it did work. So we, it meant the focus was on, was on songs. It was on Sarah's voice and just the, 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 the musical uh, aesthetic of it. You know, so the kind of creating a sound and a, a musical concept rather than a, a kind of, a, I don't know, a broader trajectory of narrative. Do you yeah, know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, yeah. It, it didn't mean, though, that, you know, we'd gone from literally playing to one man and his dog to suddenly the first gig being in front of 5,000 students at Leeds University and me going, oh, my God, what am I doing here? You know, I mean, you know, there was kind of no ease into it. It was like one man dog and then suddenly, you know, 5,000 Bain students. It was, yeah, that was uh, did <laughs> quite you, uh, a fire. I can imagine. But did you did you work on anything in terms of the, you know, your stage presence or because obviously you learn how to interact with the crowd or don't. In some situations but had you guys actually thought about how you were going to present a live show a bit more than when you were thrown into it a bit more like that no well we had a more emphasis on on good lighting and uh yeah. and, and and in actual fact it wasn't a considered thing but uh sarah was kind of uh you know she 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 wouldn't talk a lot but when she did it was a big deal <laughs> you know what i mean so and we would tend to sort of like just keep the songs coming and try to make the gaps in between so small that nobody noticed that we weren't talking yeah. that much. A lot of the time, and, and unless you've got something like really amazing to say, just don't say it. Because a lot of it, it just gets lost anyway in between the songs. And it's like, what did he say? What did he Because every gig that I went to, it was like, what was that? I missed that. What, what yeah, did yeah. he say? So, you know, I just thought it's pointless. I'd rather save me vocal energy for the songs. Yeah, yeah. I've got quite a delicate voice, you know, so... With the um, in terms of the songs as well, it'd be really interesting to know what you were kind of drawing on then for the lyrics. And was it the day to day stuff, or were you looking outwards at a bigger universal? Or, or yeah. yeah, in that respect, we did have a bit of an ethos because um, we were quite 
keen to avoid uh, cliches and sort of uh, I love you baby kind of lyrics. We, we liked the idea of writing about life as it's lived and very normal things, but presenting them in a romantic context uh, or ma making mundane things quite beautiful. That was mm -hmm. like something that which appealed to us. So, and that, that went for the words and the, the music that was, it was a bit like the whole kitchen sink, yeah, yeah. free yeah. cinema elements, which people had already experienced a bit with the Smiths and, and stuff, but we wanted to make it just a little bit glossier and a little bit more widescreen. That is kind of tr no truer, I guess, in uh, Not So Manic Now, where it's mm. you're, you're telling a, quite a, a bleak story with the backdrop of the, you know, the, 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 the uplifting music. It's, it's quite yeah. profound. Is that kind of thing, obviously with the new recordings, if we can go, if we can move on a bit, obviously there was, you kind of continue to work uh, as well together and separately, um, but then you've come together recently again, I guess, uh, to, to do more recordings. And this new latest recording, or the two singles that you put out and the, the album, did you find that together it, it kind of became, was it easy to, to to start writing again? And were you drawing on the same sort of musical and lyrical influences from, from 25 years ago? Um, you, you know, it, it felt comforting in, in its familiarity, but it, it felt really different in terms of um, our ambitions. And I, for the first time personally, I felt like I was doing it in a sort of therapeutic way. I think when, when you're young and you're in your sort of teens and early 20s, um, and you have, you know, you, you like the idea of making a, a career out of uh, art and music. You, it, be, it feels like life and death. And then when you get to, you know, another 10, maybe 20 years later, it, it, you, it, it's not, you, you've seen enough of life and death to know it's not that. Mm. Um, uh, but, but it's still very precious. And it's, it suddenly feels like an opportunity if you can do it to um, sort of exercise demons within yourself, but most importantly to share feelings with other people who've come this far down life's path, which you have in common and, and you can kind of reach people. And I felt like that when we did the last album, in, for, which came out in 2018, but especially so, of course, this last year, you know, when everybody's literally driven apart. Mm. It, that it felt especially so. So it was a way for to stay in touch with Sarah because she's my mate, you know, and and to do something together which we we you know makes us feel more greater than the sum of our parts and stronger kind of because we're both quite sort of you know we're we're both quite sort of gentle and <laughs> shrinking violets of human beings <laughs> in lots of ways, but but we get this kick out of being able to do something together which is strong. Mm. Um, and so that is kind of inspiring, I think, when you get to this particular point in life. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, we just got we've got different things to talk about now than we had when we were 20, 21 years old. We're talking recipes now, aren't we, Chris? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, but I mean, also different things to talk about musically. And, oh, yeah, music. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, <laughs> recipes. <laughs> yeah. um, Sarah, do you think your, your delivery on your vocal sort of style has changed uh, at all in that time period? Uh, do you find, I mean, as you've got older, do you feel that you've, there's a little bit more, um, not aggressiveness, but there's a... A stronger delivery potentially because you're 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 wiser and and you know the lyrically you've moved on slightly potentially to what sort of what you were talking about before i think the the world wiser hopefully wiser not and more wiser than weary uh comes yeah. through yeah i think i think there there is there is a sense of that 
Um, I'm not sort of fresh and optimistic anymore as I as I used to be. I'm sort of. Yeah. But um, I think you sound more comfortable in your own skin now than you used yeah, to. Yeah. I mean, you you always. I mean, you, by your own confession, you, you you've always had a bit of an imposter syndrome thing. Oh, I feel terrible. like you. As, as an artist, you kind of sound like, you know, you, you've got a confidence and a sort of a worldly wise sort of sound to the way you present now compared to then. I, I, th I think as well, I, I, I got very neurotic because I used to, you know, when I was on tour, the first thing you do, well, the first thing I do, because my throat's, I've, I've got quite a small vocal channel thing i've had because i've had sore throats for years mm. and i've had things down my throat tubes down my throat to have a look at it and stuff and uh, so for me singing it's it's on one hand it's this thing that i love to do but i'm also quite it, it causes me pain sometimes which really upsets me as well so it's this real sort of tug of war so it's learning to um work with my voice and you know just figure out how to sing without pain <laughs> Yeah, I used to. I just used to get really hoarse on tour, and you know, it, it, at, at the time I was, uh, they they told me to drink stout, <laughs> so I used to drink quite a lot of Guinness. But I had this wonderful. I went to see this wonderful singing teacher who was Shirley Bassey's singing teacher, and she was just absolutely bonkers. And she was she 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 said, "Fling your shoulders out wide." Sorry, you won't be able to see because it's a podcast. But she said, if you put your hands by your, by your sides and then just rotate your arms outwards, it opens out your chest. And that's what Shirley Bassey did. Yeah, but I was going to say, I've seen Bassey do that. Yeah, yeah. And her shoulder blades, because what happens is your shoulder blades actually sort of move around the back of your rib cage and it just opens your, your whole rib cage out. A lot of the uh, conversations that I've tried to sort of steer towards is that we look back at um, not in, in a very fond, nostalgic way. But it is it, a lot of... Um, uncomfortable uh like issues about looking back at some of the the 90s and especially for me as a bloke now you know mm. 43 uh moved moved very much away from laddism and very quickly i guess mm. and grew out of it and it wasn't always a, a, a particularly sort of pleasant era for for many people no it was toxic yeah yeah, yeah. But it's true, and 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 we were we were aware. You know, I'm not just saying this. We were aware of that at the time. You know, and mm. we and we and it was uncomfortable then. I mean, and and it was quite it was quite pervasive, and and it it felt like women uh, were encouraged to be more male. You know, like you had to drink pints and all that because there was a very postmodern sort of attitude to almost everything like the music scene and culture and film you know it was supposed to be okay because of the irony you know to mm. to to objectify women and that was that was pretty cringeworthy and i think that, that's part of the reason why um you know for instance uh, we uh, used to find ourselves not hanging out so much with those sort of bands as much you know it's, i remember do you remember like the romo scene for, for you know even though we weren't one of those bands who like really took us to their bosom you know yeah. and like because they oh, were very sen sensitive souls and yeah. we, there was, it was like a counterculture which had sort of just in, inherently was opposed to that kind of behavior yeah. and i think they kind of recognized that, that in us and vice versa so but yes i mean it's it's a shame in hindsight that that was a a shame, really. Yeah, I think, I think women weren't taken seriously until they'd posed on the front of Loaded in the lingerie so that they were then, you know, they they, they could not be taken seriously. Do you mm. know, so it was like this weird thing. They had to fit in mm. by, yeah, horrible. Play the game. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, and then they tear you down, and oh, awful, awful. Yeah, awful. And, and did you have um, what was your relationship with with the musical press, Enemy uh, and, and and Melody Maker and the like? Was it pretty good, or was it was that still because that was well? Another... I mean, like I say, because because we'd signed with with Food, um, you know, which is the home of Blur and people like that, and they were in the same uh, block on Arlington Road as Savage and Best. And yeah, I don't know if you know Savage and Best, the, the press co uh, company, basic, basically uh, invented Britpop. And so much, I mean, if you, if you were reading the enemy and the Melody Maker in the early 90s through to the end of the 90s, really, you know, the major, almost all, everything you saw in there, the content was coming from that building um, mm -hmm. and the whole good mixer scene and everything. So, so yes, we did get a lot of uh, press, which, which was very handy for us because we sort of came in that slipstream with a lot of the other Savage and Best acts. And that's kind of why we ended up being pigeonholed a little bit with the Britpop thing, mm. when we probably wouldn't have naturally, in terms of the way we sound and what we were yeah, doing, yeah. It, it wasn't an obvious thing to assume. But we found ourselves, you know, occupying column space next door to... Uh, you know, the Verve or Pope or whatever. So, I mean, it was it was good for us because it meant that we we were found ourselves in a place where people were already looking at that point. So yeah, we had a decent relationship with the press, but we always I think even they they thought like, what are they really doing here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we used to drink in the good mixer with menswear, you know. It's like yeah, and Graham Cox, and you know. <laughs> At the time, I remember growing up thinking you all must be so so friendly and good pals, and all the bands meet up in Camden and have a good old time and a drink and then share stories. But I, I, from what I've heard, is it wasn't quite like that. It was a lot of competition and a lot of. Um... Yeah, I mean, there was a, a, a bit of that. I mean, you know, we we started doing that in nineteen ninety as well. There, yeah, there, there was. It was good. I mean, it was good for us that we because we were on the food label. Yeah, you know, I mean, for instance, like Graham Coxon would was always in the, the mixer. He he used to like going places like that because he liked to chat to electricians and plumbers and people like that. Yeah. So when yeah. loads of, he hated having the fact that all the bands started going there, that really got on his nerves. I got along fine with Graham, probably because we were tantamount to family because we were all on the food thing. Yeah. But I feel like th there was a lot of resentment when you couldn't get to the bar for either yeah, or just yeah. other bands who aspired to be in that same environment you know and yeah. it, it did it, it it started off as sort of a you know kind of ironic and fun thing and ended up becoming a bit of a circus down. you know just you remember I, I can remember going down to like outside the good mix because they were all in the same vicinity they were within spitting distance of each other savage and best food and the good mixer pub and i could just remember you know saturday nights and it, it you know they were spilling on the pavement they were going down towards camden market there were that many people there just looking for the bands that in the end the bands had all good off to the old eagle up the road it was like <laughs> you know they'd all gone to hide it was great for the good mixer though because they managed to like redo the pub and everything they, they yeah. got like a complete facelift out of it and they did really well bless them in terms of the future then in 2021 you've got more material i'm guessing to to do something with and release is that the plan yeah i mean we've been you know working for like i say almost a full year just on this particular album project but it, it really does take you know what used to take a, a few weeks to do now it takes a few months 
And uh, what used to take a few months now takes a year or so. So, <laughs> um, so in, in truth is, we, we've actually got we stockpiled quite a, a big body of work now, and um, and which I'm really excited about. I feel like it's the strongest stuff we've ever come up with. Um, it's really just about waiting to see uh, how we're going to present it because at the minute everybody's living day to day to mm. know in terms of. What I mean, for instance, just on just simple things like, I mean, will I be able to have my photograph taken with Sarah? <laughs> you know, like to I mean, do some publicity shots and just things like the that. The luxury of forward planning. I mean, I'm a very poor forward planner at the best of times, but Gordon Bennett, at the moment, I can't even think any further forward than a few hours in the day. You know, it's just <laughs> yeah. like. Uh, would you be looking for opportunities to play live again, do you think, as well? When it's, 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 it's really nice but i mean like you were saying the other day that just just the, the temptation to book something in and then just have to cancel it would just be awful yeah, yeah. and, and like the, and the lifeblood of the the live industry has always been insurance <laughs> and the, that, the insurance industry and i don't know what how that's mutating alongside this yeah. particular narrative um because you're already seeing bands you know, rescheduling for the second, third time. And it must be so dispiriting as well, just to keep and, having your you know, like that. I just don't want to stick my head like the mole above the the, the, the thing just to be whacked on the head and like, nope. <laughs> yeah. Just yeah. Like, the last few times that we played live though, we always did so rather than booking in a, a tour with, you know, the catering firm there and all that, we, we tended to just put a couple of things on the calendar which were special and sort of, personal and uh and work towards that so i suspect that next time we do anything like that it'll be like that it could be much sooner or much later and it'll be not obvious because we tend to not <laughs> like to do obvious things if we can help it so we, we, we've always got it in the back of the mind uh, but obviously we've got the practicalities to deal with mm. and we're all just waiting to see you know well i really hope you guys I managed to get out and uh, I managed to come out and see you as well. It'd be great to see you guys play and look forward to hearing more new music. And, and thank you very much for, for joining me today, guys. Oh, you are so welcome. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks again to Sarah and Chris for joining me on the podcast. It was such a nice chat. They were really open and candid and a pleasure to speak to. I've put a link to their website in the show notes so you can check out their new music and remixes they've been putting out recently over lockdown. And again, also just remember to hit the show notes for the links to social media and the Ko-Fi page. If all goes to plan, I'll have another episode next week. Take care. Cheerio. Cheerio.